This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. today we have we actually have two the first one is a christmas missing persons case with very little information but i wanted to highlight him uh, again this falls into that category of sort of 30 something uh, guy who goes missing and this one has like some hints as to what may have been going on in his life but uh, realistically, it doesn't seem like a lot was done about him. He does. He has a Charlie project. He's on the Doe Network. Web Sleuth talks about him. Um, he pops in multiple places. He goes missing on December 25th of 1994 out of Newport, Ritchie, Florida. That's going to be Pasco County down there. What's interesting is, depending on where you read, some places say December 25th, 1995, and I noticed that his case file is actually from 1996. So there's something going on there. Uh, he's a white male. He is 37 years old when he goes missing. He would be 66 today. His nameless case gets created December 23rd of 2010, also by Pasco County. Uh, this is Paul Clyde Rollins. He's either six foot or six foot one inches tall, according to the NamUs profile, and he weighed between 175 and 180 pounds. He had short, curly brown hair, blue eyes, and he had a mustache. Uh, he also had multiple scars, and there's references to some injuries that he may have had. I think the, uh, the Charlie Project specified it as a scar on the back of his right calf, and he had previously fractured his right hand. So uh, the circumstances of his disappearance, uh, and this comes from the name is uh, profile, which at one point had a detective on it named Mark Celeste. I can't tell if he's still on it or not. Uh, it does have a, a, a pretty good headshot of him. That headshot appears in most of the profiles across the internet, but it says Paul Rollins was last seen at his father's residence just prior to Christmas, 1994. After not being able to reach Paul for several months and discovering his residence was being foreclosed, 
His family found all of his belongings left behind and they never heard from him again. I ran into a little bit of a wall trying to check his criminal record, but I multiple places reported that he had three warrants out for his arrest at the time of his disappearance. Right, which immediately, it brings two things to mind to me. I don't know about you. I don't know what the warrants were for. And I think uh, that's what you were alluding to. You weren't sure. Uh, yeah, I was there. trying to, I was basically trying to pull the Pasco County warrants and I couldn't see any. So. Right. And so anytime somebody has uh, warrants, it makes me think uh, one of two things. One would be that, you know, they're running away from their warrants. Um, the other would be that there's something to do with those warrants possibly that would explain why they're missing and it might not be on their own accord. That, that is always like something that you should consider. Uh, and it's not, I don't think, I don't consider that to be super speculative to think that like, for instance, if someone were to be picked up on drug charges and they get hit with a felony charge of some kind um, that ties to other people, meaning if they get hit with a trafficking or maintaining a vehicle or maintaining a dwelling and the right detective gets in front of them and makes statements like, we're going to take your house, we're going to take your car, we're going to put you in prison for 10 years. There might be situations where people would go, well, I'm going to turn on this other person. Um, Or there could be situations where other people think like that guy's, you know, dodged his warrants or whatever, um, he might be thinking about turning me in. Right, right. So that would be somebody that um, would be concerned, right, about uh, being a pawn in a plea deal. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, That would be a reason that somebody could potentially, you know, do something to another person. This case pops, um, as far as sources go, the Pasco County Sheriff's Office still has it as a listed missing person. The, the FDLE, Florida Department of Law Enforcement, has it. NamUs has it. Charlie Project, Doe Network. Um, you can go and read about him. There is not a lot to read other than he has warrants out. Um, he gets reported missing. He's never been heard from again. There's a few details in his case. Uh, there is the question of what year did he go missing? Um, right. And so I think the explanation that um, I figured, which is it's complete speculation, I think that it was just the, that was the last time he was seen was at his parents' house. Yeah. But so my my here's my thinking on it. You have a 1994 is what it says in NamUs. And clearly someone was thinking about him in 2010 around this time of year when they put him in and on December 23rd. So I don't think he's a backlog situation. I think he's just like he predates Nemus and someone was thinking about him on the anniversary of the time frame. They put him in there. So 94 is what Nemus says. 95 is what gets referenced elsewhere. Like Charlie Project says December 25th, 1995. And then the case file itself says 1996. So huh. 94. Okay, so that's actually different than what I was thinking. I, I didn't realize there was actually like a different Christmas day. I see what you're saying. I um I would in this particular situation, I would go with Namus, uh, except what was the case file from? 96. So no, my but thing like was, what's the source on it? 
the number, it's also NamUs. The, if you go to the agency case number on NamUs, it's 96-43552. So my thinking was he actually went missing December 25th, 1995. When his dad reported him missing a couple of months later, it's like, you know, March or April of 1996. Huh. And that's how they get the, the number rolling on it. I don't know for sure, but, um, you know, he's a Christmas missing person. Uh, the theme is home for the holidays, so I wanted to include him here. I would like to just say that um, I know this is probably just a mistake or something. It's just a typo, but how sad is it that, like, we don't even know, like, which year was it? Yeah, well, that's why I was highlighting it because it's, you know, it's interesting to me when you see something like this and you don't have a good, clear um, answer for what's happened. Right, because how can you possibly, like, dive deeper into a case when you're looking at, you know, three-year span here that one of those Christmases he was missing? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you on that. I, I, I look at it and I'm... And that's uh, nobody's fault. I'm just, I'm just kind of pointing out the fact that we have very little information about this guy. Um, the... Alarm wasn't sent sent off or didn't go off until they um, his parents had or his family hadn't been in touch with him, and you know they find out his property is being foreclosed on, which means he wasn't making payments for some amount of time, right? Right. And so that's concerning, um, unless he was in financial trouble to begin with, which it doesn't seem like that was the case. But I just I just wanted to point out that like some of these cases. And, you know, this is going on 30 years, regardless of which um, year you, you know, pick. But some of these cases, like, they're so vague. It, I don't see a whole lot of hope without, like, people like us trying to, you know, say, hey, don't forget about him, right? Yeah, that, I mean, that's one of the things that we've sort of strived to do all along. And, it, you know, it's there are a couple places people are talking about him kind of in like group situations. Like if you go online and I, I don't know if people do web sleuths a lot anymore. I, I, I know that there was a point in time I did quite a bit on, on web sleuths. Um, he gets mentioned there anytime like a body is found. Uh, I saw that uh, there was like a, a thread or whatever you call it on there where someone was looking at uh, this situation where a body had been found in Pasco County. And I think it was in like 2017 or 2018. I guess it turned out not to be him. Um, but the other thing I did was I, I poked around in uh, Pasco, Florida's unidentified persons cases, and there's not one that fits him at all, um, which was interesting because that's kind of rare. Uh, but the parameters that would be even close to him, like they're all pre-1990 uh, missing per uh, unidentified persons cases. And so, you know, it, he, it's worth mentioning. And I do agree with the phenomenon that you've identified and sort of you thought that like guys this age going missing doesn't create a, a big investigation. Uh, frequently, even families don't go hunting for them. Well, right, because um, the thought is, well, they went missing of their own, uh, you know, accord, right? 
Right. And and a lot of times, I mean, I, I don't know, like if if how old was this guy? Thirty seven. If when my dad was thirty seven years old, he just like, you know, disappeared, right? Yeah. Um whose business would it have been? Well, except for my mom, of course, but like whose business is it to be like, you need to get back here. Right. You, you see what I'm saying? Oh yeah. And so that always, and this, you know, obviously that was in the nineties. Um, but I do think that, um, you know, once you're going on 30 years that the guy's been gone, it becomes, well, wish, you know, I wish the investigators had paid a little more attention and had a more definitive uh, answer to the questions, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's why in talking about these cases is important. I will say this, there is a December 12th, 2019 unidentified person case out of Port Richie, Florida, uh, UP 65585. Um, it was a nameless case that was created in February of 2020. There is so much detail in that case that um, I wanted to mention him too, because like they detailed his tennis shoes and his shirt and his hat and the size of everything he was wearing. But uh, it's an unidentified per- person found in Port Ritchie, Florida, who's believed to be a, a mixture of Caucasian and, and possibly Hispanic Latino, uh, found by a hiker in the Salt Spring uh, State Park. Um, that was another one that like stood out it's skeleton it's skeletonized remains thought to be between 26 and 70 years old obviously when that happens they can't estimate a, a pmi or a weight very accurately but they think it's a guy between five three and five foot ten inches tall so you know kind of highlighting that as well if it's 95 and the case is made in 96 then this guy doesn't work for that either but that is an Interesting look, and they have that mustache there. Is well, he, right? Is he a rollout? No, they, they, he hasn't been excluded. But um, it appears that Paul Rollins does have DNA available because he does have exclusions. Uh, so that's my first missing persons case is, is Paul Rollins. Um, and I wanted to do another one, uh, primarily because uh, I was trying to do a thing in my head when we started doing this where I wanted to do – Christmas time and close locations. And this one has a pretty close match. And, and there looks like there might be a story here. Um, this is uh, MP92087. He's entered into NamUs June 3rd of 2022, but his missing, like, date of last contact, his official missing date is December 22nd of 2021 in Norwich, uh, Norwich. Connecticut, but in New London County, which is the site of the other case we're going to be talking about. And that was one of the things I wanted to do, sort of link the locations if I could. This kid that goes missing is 18 years old when he goes missing in 2021. So he would be 20 today. The name they have in name is for him is Ethan Hester. I did find uh, where the local police were looking for him and they named him as Ethan Adam Hester. He is a Caucasian male between six foot three and six foot four when he goes missing. And he's 165 to 170 pounds. Now, one of the interesting things about this case is the circumstances. Here's what the circumstances say kind of generally. He went to work at the Mohegan Sun Casino in 
Uncasville or Uncasville, Connecticut. The missing person was fired from his job that day and he left on a seat bus, S-E-A-T bus. The missing person then went to New London, Connecticut and got off of the bus, but there are no other known locations after getting off the bus. And this is what they did that like, I feel like deserves a little attention. They tagged him as a habitual runaway, according to the reporting party. They said that he's known to frequent the New London, Connecticut area. Um, but then, so starting then going forward, they periodically have press releases related to him. And it's, you know, the press release reads a little differently. So this is from Katie Langley. She covered this for NBC Connecticut in June of 2023. So earlier this year, it says Norwich police. And I don't know if I'm saying that right. I'm just saying Norwich. Um, that's in Connecticut, uh, searching for 20 year old who disappeared from new London train station in 2021. So this is right around Christmas this is December 22nd, 2021. And it says Norwich police are asking for assistance in the search for a person who has been missing since December, 2021. Police said the missing person may go by Ethan Adam Hester or Ava, A-V-A, which I have a question about here in a second. Hester, who is 20, was last seen on December 22nd, 2021 at the New London Union Station Terminal. Hester got off a Southeast Area Transit District bus, so that's seat, Southeast Area Transit, just after 4 p.m. that day and went into an Amtrak station before disappearing. Hester was last seen wearing black pants, black shoes, a black puffer jacket, a black face mask, and black headphones, was carrying an orange backpack. Police say Hester is autistic and is possibly suicidal. Though Hester was reported missing in 2021, police are asking for the public's help after exhausting all leads connected to the case. The local police department is encouraging anyone with information to call 860-886-5561 and ask for extension 3138. That's 860-886-5561. And you can ask for extension 3. One three eight, or you can email P Karasuk. That's K A R A S U K at the City of Norwich. So City of N O R W I C H dot org. Uh, you can also text anonymously from online. That phone number eight six zero eight eight six five five six one. If you know anything about Ethan Hester, why did they jump to the name Ava? Do you think? Well, I I wonder if there was uh if he was experiencing some sort of uh g- gender fluidity exploration. Yeah, I wasn't sure if that was where they were headed if it was some kind of uh, ginger swap and that's what they were it's not mentioned in the name of file, which is why I asked. Um he did have a silver alert issue. Right. And so I would just go ahead and say that unless you legitimately believe your child has run away, which he was an adult, he was of age, um, you don't ever want your child to be labeled as a habitual runaway because that means like they're not looking for them. Now, I realize that over time they started looking for him. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's because, you know, he's only 18. So how many times has he run away from home for two years? Right. 
Um, that's not the case. Uh, but I feel like anytime, of course, if you've made missing persons reports before, they're going to know anyway. But I feel like those get um, sort of, they get less priority, which, and I'm not saying that there's really anything wrong with that. Cause in theory, if a child has run away and they're going to be back in a couple of days, I mean, do the police really need to be involved with that? Right. I, I mean, I tend to agree with you. Generally speaking, I ran down to social media up until the point he goes missing, which is shortly before, shortly before that, uh, press release goes out because the first press release changes slowly, but I found, you know, social media for him. It doesn't look like, uh, anything major is going on there. I will say that some of his photos, it's hard. It, it, he could blend in pretty easily to a couple different places, whatever is going on with him. I do hope he's found and I hope he's safe somewhere. And, um, whoever is looking for him, I hope that that can be, you know, sorted out. He has not been active on social media since just before uh, he goes missing, and, and these uh, the silver alert comes out. He, uh, I was asking about the Ava part because at some point I want to have a conversation with someone who can explain to me what you do when there's a situation like you described, whether it's fluidity or there's like a. Um, a gender in process of being changed medically, um, you know, to, to sort of match the outside with the inside situation. Cause I have someone in my life who is transgender and I've been through a lot of uh, all those situations. And I've always wondered if something were to happen to that person and I were called upon to describe them, like what would I do? And uh, you just think, be honest. Yeah. Like, so, you know, I would never call that person a habitual runaway. I don't know what I would do. And that came up during some of our missing person situations that you and I have looked at over the years. In my opinion, people left the old name and person behind and moved on. Right. And they're not missing. Right. They're not missing at all. Like if I dig deep enough on some of them, there's an at least three that I found have official changes to uh, the documents required to get a new driver's license. Right. And so, I mean, if you think about like, you know, three and I, and I don't know what the actual number is, but like, you know, three out of 24,000, I mean, you're not even hitting at 1%, right? Right. This is a very small number of people this is happening to. And we've talked about even without um, like an sort of an overlying uh, circumstance, sometimes people are only missing to the people that have reported them missing. Right. Yes. Uh, they're not actually missing people. And um, this would definitely be it would be a little bit more intricate uh, knowing that you've got uh, someone who transitioned, right? To me, the premise remains that like, they're not a missing person. And, you know, nobody owes anybody an explanation. Um, this uh, kid, I say that, he, he's not a kid. Uh, he, he was 18, but Ethan Hester, um, being, you know, of age, 
he doesn't owe anybody an explanation. Um, the thing that would be a little concerning to me is um, anytime you're looking at a situation where you've got a negative contribution, which would be that like he lost his job that day. Yeah. Um, that immediately makes me think that uh, there may be something more dire happening. Well, I think that's how they jump to suicidal here where he lost his job. And like, I, I think that becomes a thing pretty quickly that if, if something like that has happened, you have to look at it more seriously because that's someone who may, uh, may be in need of other assistance than like, they may need uh, someone to talk to. It could be that, you know, they need services of some kind to get back on their feet. Uh, you know, it could be that this guy just moved on and he has a whole new life. And if that's the case, good. He's out there somewhere. But I mean, how many 18 year olds do that really? I, you know, like you say it, like it doesn't, I think it's a bigger number than we would realize that 18 year olds, they moved to California. They moved to New York. I I think for the most part where what, what you were saying applies is I don't think most of them do it from the perspective of, I am cutting off everyone I ever knew before. Well, right. That's what I'm saying. And I hope you're right. I hope that they've all got new lives somewhere. It just, I feel like it's, it's really hard. Of course, we don't have all the background information we have. I mean, the, it says that the reporting person is the person who said they were a habitual runaway, right? And Correct. so we don't know what was happening there. It's possible. I don't know. There's something that goes into like the reporting person saying, well, they run away all the time, right? Yeah. And that gives you sort of an insight into any sort of dynamic there. And it, my point is like, if you're saying like, oh yeah, well, this person's gone, but they run away all the time. That would make me think that there's not really a like caring and compassionate situation there. Yeah. Yeah. I would tend to agree with that. So they may have just left the person behind, right? It could be. It absolutely I hope could so. be. I hope so. And I hope that he's, I hope that um, Ethan is somewhere happy for Christmas this year. I, I tend to think the exact same way, like with all of these cases, I, that's really, ultimately, I want people to be uh, happy and okay. So where he goes missing from in New London is the site of our exoneration case today. This is not a super like long exoneration, but it is kind of complicated and it's older. Um, Definitely not the oldest one that we had, but this is a manslaughter conviction out of New London, Connecticut. The date of the crime was 1943 and the conviction date was 1944. The exoneration date was 1946. Now, the sentence they had faced was 10 to 15 years. And for just demographic information, this exoneration involves a Caucasian female who was 53 years old at the time of the crime. And the contributing factors to this are an interesting one, and that is a false confession. How frequent do you think uh, false confessions play into these things? Um, Do you mean these, like, 
older exonerations or like just exonerations in general? Um, just in general, what do you think the, like the basic stats are on that? I don't know what the statistics are, but I would say that it's high. It is weirdly high. And now, um, I'm pulling this from a couple different websites, but the best landing point is if you believe in the innocence project and read their statistics, they collect a lot of data mm -hmm. and the statement there on, uh, innocence project like DNA exonerations only from 1989 to 2020, they said that 61% of the, and uh, this is as of July 29th, 2020, by the way, in case these numbers have changed, 61% of the 137 DNA exonerees who were wrongfully convicted for murder had false confessions in their cases. So that's 83 False confessions. Now, they break them down a little differently than I thought. Uh, 33 of those were people who confessed themselves. 20 of them had co-defendants who confessed. And another 30 confessed themselves and also had co-defendants who confessed. Wow. That's a scary number, right? Uh, I don't know that scary is how I would say it. Um, it it's actually, it's interesting. The breakdown's interesting because uh, I think during our first, I think when we did the 12 days of Christmas, maybe we talked about how the um, three defendants end up being the three defendants, right? Yeah. Where you've got, you know, the one guy who's not quite where the police believe he could have done it by himself and then you know but they convince him and then they ask him about you know his friend and then with the two of them they're like we're almost there one more buddy right yeah and so that kind of correlates right because you've got a situation where you've got um i i would go so far as to say i doubt very seriously any of the people that uh did you say 137? Yeah, it's 137. So it's 83 that were that had an attribute of a false confession yeah. in their case. Yeah. So I don't think any of those people walked in, right? So I'm saying that the confession came in off of pressure from investigators when they themselves confessed, right? Yeah. Okay, and then then the other situation is that uh, they were in a, a group setting and somebody confessed and implicated them, right? Yeah. So I pulled to talk about this. I know I'm sort of away from the exoneration for a second, but but I was really fascinated by this. And I wanted to just mention this. Um, I pulled this article from the American Psychological Association, the APA. And this is a February 2023 article. It, I'm, I'm going to just cite a little bit of it, not a lot. Um, it falls in the forensic psychology topic area, if people read over there. It has quite a few citations at the bottom. It has two authors, Kyle uh, Schur, S-C-H-E-R-R, who is a professor of psychology at Central Michigan. And then it has Christopher Normile, who is a, a assistant professor of psychology at Allegheny College. This was interesting to me. In a recent study published in Law and Human Behavior, Kyle Scherr and Christopher Normile analyzed data from murder-related cases that were cataloged in the National Registry of Exonerations and found that false 
confession evidence was associated with a meaningful delay between when the wrongfully when the wrongly convicted individual was released from prison and when they were officially exonerated. Although often referred to interchangeably, being released from prison and being officially exonerated are two unique legal events. The findings suggest that a significant negative consequence of false confession evidence may be its influence on the delay between when an individual is released from prison and when they are officially exonerated. According to the National Registry of Exonerations, which is one of our sources for the holiday episodes, over 3,300 individuals have been exonerated of a wrongful conviction since 1989, and over a third of the cataloged exonerations are for murder and murder-related charges. It asked attempted murder, accessory to murder, accessory after the fact, conspiracy, Share and Nomile analyzed data from the NRE for catalog exonerations of those who had been wrongfully convicted of murder, attempted murder, and accessory to murder. In their analyses, they examined how certain specific factors associated with wrongful convictions. And among those were false confessions, faulty or misleading forensic evidence, inadequate legal defense, mistaken eyewitness identification, official misconduct and perjury, and other relevant factors. For instance, the involvement of DNA or being on death row and subject to a capital sentence. These were related to the length of the delay between when individuals were released from prison and when they were officially exonerated. Cases that involved a false confession were associated with a meaningful delay between being released from prison and achieving official exoneration. The relationship remained when accounting for the other relevant factors studied. Delays between being released and being officially exonerated can undermine individuals' well-being. One reason for this is that these individuals often live with the fear of going through a retrial. In addition, the delay may preclude them from accessing reintegration aids, such as financial compensation, housing assistance, when the aid programs disallow people with a conviction on the record from receiving any assistance. Sharon Normile argue that future research should examine how the decision-making processes and judgments of legal actors influence trajectories leading to release and exoneration. Among the strategies they suggested for reducing these injustices experienced by people who have been wronged wrongly convicted on the basis of a false confession is building public awareness of both the process leading to false confessions and the long-term consequences of false confession evidence through documentaries, popular press outlets, and other easily accessible or digestible mediums, including podcasts. I, I thought it was interesting that they were trying to, and they go in more detail in here, the article at APA links to that, but it's very, it's complex numbers and it, it was a little confusing. Right. And, you know, um, so as far as false confessions go, um, there's not a whole lot of sympathy given. Um, there have been some mainstream type medias uh, that have come out shining light on the situations that can lead to false confessions. And I feel like that has garnered a little bit of at least empathy for people who end up uh, falsely confessing. Cause I, I can't remember 
it may have just been called false confessions. I, I'm not sure, but it it shined light on the duress a ultimately exonerated defendant was under at the time that they were confessing, right? Yeah. I, you know, just like that article was saying, it's very important that just sort of normal everyday people, at least here in the United States, realize like you have absolutely nothing to prove to the police at any point in time, more so even if you haven't committed a crime, right? Yeah. And the techniques that they're using to um, are at least that they've used and that have been showcased, they're terrible and they would make anybody confess, right? And so you have to kind of be strong-willed about things and, and keep it in the back of your mind. It's while human nature sort of dictates, like if something comes up and you've been accused of a crime, you want to immediately, you know, say, well, I didn't do that crime, right? Yeah. Um, that's that's how most people are. And our justice system sort of flies in the face of that because you don't even need to say that uh, because it will begin to be picked apart. And then any sort of information they get, they get that much closer to being able to put whatever pressure it is that, you know, they have to put on you. And so I would take this opportunity, like the paper you were, or the article you were just reading was saying, like, you know, people need to realize you don't owe the cops any explanation. And anytime something like that were to happen, you may feel the need to explain yourself, but it's not a good idea. Yeah. Even if you feel like you have pertinent information, one of the best things that you can do is have a lawyer relay that information. Absolutely. If you you know something super specific, but you don't think they'll get from anywhere else, first of all, they probably will. But in the event that you think that's what's going on, a lawyer relaying that information is far less likely to result in you having these kind of legal troubles. You know, to I, I just don't want anybody to think like, oh, well, I would never do something like that because you have no idea what you would do, right? It, it is super easy to get involved in a conversation with the police where you have no idea where they're going. Oh, right. And you're just feeding it. And then when it gets to the point where you catch up and you're like, wait, what? <laughs> and, you know, all of a sudden... They have nailed you and you're like, but I haven't done anything. And, you know, those are bad investigators. But, you know, there's a whole thing out there that, you know, our judicial system has gone through like over years, I mean, decades, right? Um, As far as, you know, Miranda warnings and like, don't talk to the police without an attorney. Don't talk to anybody about any sort of crime without an attorney. Um, Because the whole point is that... um, it's not that you're you're trying to get away from something or to get away with a crime, right? It's just that like the tactics used aren't always uh, conducive to human nature, basically. Yeah, they have an objective. Like uh, tactics have an objective, and that objective does not take you into account. The objective, no, it really doesn't. The the objective is something that you can be an obstacle to. And to be quite honest, uh, you by being that obstacle, you can find yourself in the crosshairs of a different objective down the road. And you don't want to be there. Um, but I thought I'd talk about this just a little bit. What I was actually looking for is I was looking for that total number of false confessions. And I haven't, I don't have a 
good number of it because I can only use the ones that have sort of been revealed by other evidence, which is why I mentioned it from the perspective of DNA said this. Right, because lacking that, um, I would say that false, do you think false confessions or eyewitness testimony is harder to overcome? I think a false confession is harder to overcome. Um, so I will, I'm going to split a hair on this one and I'm going to say, I think a false confession made by a co-defendant is the hardest thing to overcome. So somebody else, uh, confessing that they did it and you were involved. Right. I think that's probably the hardest one to overcome, but it might only be second to if you confess and someone else's confess, even if your confessions don't match, then you're screwed. Well, one of these days, maybe one day when I retire, I I really want to know. I I have a very strong um, inclination with all the research I've done in my, my entire you know, investigative lifetime. Uh, I would say that uh, the inclusion of another person is so incredibly rare in any sort of, I would say if another person's included, uh, that a murder specifically was not the intended uh, outcome of the situation, right? Yeah, you get into, I don't want to say there's statistical anomalies, but there are, there's so tiny uh, percentages that multiple people gang up on someone with the intent to kill them. Oh, so, so few. And it's so few that I can't even believe that like this whole like, you know, uh, co-defendant confession situation is actually a thing. Those would be the very first ones I'd be looking at because um, it, it boggles the mind when one would <laughs> would falsely confess their own involvement, not to mention like bringing somebody else into it. Sometimes it can be a minimization effort and it can be subconscious, but it's the false part that makes it weird. Uh, if, you know, if you're just dying to get into more information on this, you can actually go to the National Registry of Exonerations, which is on the University of Michigan's Law school pages, I believe, is where it kind of lands you. You can go to the top. First of all, you can go in there and browse cases for hours. Uh, Second, so that should scare people because it has that many exonerations in there that you can literally browse probably for days. Um, Or you can go on there and you can click on the reports that people put together uh, or the issues that people examine. And there are a lot of interesting factors about exoneration. Uh, today, I'm dragging Meg down the rabbit hole of a false confession case. This uh, crime takes place on Christmas Eve of 1943. It specifically takes place on the Boxwood Manor Estate in Old Lyme, Connecticut. James Streeto, S-T-R-E-E-T-O, was a 50-year-old caretaker at the Boxwood Manor. He was murdered on Christmas Eve in his home. Now, Delphine Bertrand was a 53-year-old undocumented immigrant from Canada who also worked at Boxwood Manor. 
She had been visiting Strito the night of the murder, and she called the state police to report the crime. All right. So they talk about people finding the body being the prime suspect. So that's if, sort if of what happens. If they're connected to the person, right? Yeah. So this is a, like, do you know what Boxwood Manor is? Did you, like, look it up for this? Or no, anything? I didn't look it up, but I assumed it was a um, a house. Yeah, so it was a private residence. It's a, it's a massive mansion. And it had become different things over the years. So I was going to talk about it for, for just a second. Um, in 1841, a guy named Richard Sill Griswold, uh, he had become a pretty well compensated partner in his father's New York shipping firm. And he built a massive brick dwelling on what is now Lime Street in Old Lime, Connecticut. According to a neighbor from the time, they noted that all the workmen that came in to build this house were from New York and Mr. Griswold's house was much more elegant than anything that was built in Lyme at the time. Today, the estate, which is now hidden behind some really beautiful landscaping, it has been remodeled as a sort of loft and condominium complex. Over the last 175 years, the Griswold estate served as a private girls' academy an artist studio and residence, a venue for musical entertainment, and suffrage gatherings. And in 1921, it was the site of Connecticut's first state police training school. But its years as a fashionable summer inn brought its greatest celebrity. There are a variety of local colored postcards displaying the flower beds, hedgerows, and fruit trees that promoted the old Lyme scenic beauty in the 1930s. So this is a shoreline town. It was a summer tourist destination. It became that in 1870 after the completion of the first railroad bridge across the Connecticut River. In 1876, Martha Lamb, who was a historian there, she described Old Line in an article for Harper's Magazine as one of the loveliest nooks on the New England coast. She also praised the Parapoint House Hotel, whose comfortable facilities and modern amenities drew appreciative New York visitors. So this area is really attractive for people that are coming in. But Boxwood Manor, it offered guests access to shore cottages on what is now called White Sands Beach. Uh, This house gets passed down through families Uh, over the years, and Richard Sill Griswold Jr. inherits this estate. He adds a third floor to it, and he adds a side wing to accommodate uh, his family. He had eight kids with his wife. He also created the elaborate rear gardens that featured extensive boxwood hedges and a canopy of cherry trees, and he put in a massive goldfish pool at the base of, on a 40-foot square flagstone base. So in this setting, his wife, who is known as Rosa Brown Griswold, opened the Boxwood School for Girls in 1890. Uh, this was 
originally designed to be a place where girls could come and learn things they would not learn elsewhere, including uh, strange types of music and languages that they might not be able to uh, learn back in the 1800s into the early 1900s. Now, the Art Students League of New York located its summer school here in 1902, 12 years later. And it's, it's a fascinating history. It sort of dies out in the 1940s. So as far as the popularity of the place, it became a little more private. It almost sort of went to ruin at one point in time, but it is there today. It is huge. It is beautiful. It is now preserved as a historic landmark at Nine Lime Street in Old Lime, Connecticut. Uh, and if you want to just check out something awesome, uh, you can you can Google it or go to Historic Buildings of Connecticut, which is some of some of what I just pulled it's from there. Um, the Griswold family sold the building in 1975, and then later on it was converted to what it is now. But it is absolutely gorgeous, and it is the setting for today's story. Delphine Bertrand, who was being courted by James Strito, the 50-year-old caretaker, she told the state police that James called her that evening and wanted to take her to his house. She claimed about 10 p.m., three men who seemed to be in their 20s had stormed into the house. They stole $20 from her and they tied her up and they dragged Strito, James Strito, to another room and she heard a terrific tussle. It took her about an hour to untie the cords that she had been bound with and she went to a neighbor's house and called the Westbrook Barrack of the state police. Delphine said that after the attack, the three men got into a car and they drove away. According to police, a gun, a knife, and a club had been used during the attack on James Strito. The medical examiner at the time reported that James's head was battered, he had been shot through the ribs on one side, and he had been stabbed through the ribs on the other side. Delphine was sent to the New County London Jail for questioning in connection with the slaying, at first as a material witness. She denied any part in the slaying, but described in detail how the murder had occurred. However, on February 10th of 1944, she confessed to New London County Coroner Edward J. McKay that she had committed the murder. Less than two hours after McKay issued his finding, which held Bertrand criminally responsible for James Strito's slaying, she was arrested and taken to the old Lyme Court before Justice Shirley Saunders. Although she had been held for two months as a material witness, she had not yet been arrested. On April the 4th of 1944, Delphine was indicted by the Superior Court by a grand jury, was indicted in Superior Court by a grand jury for second degree murder. Now at the time in Connecticut, that carried a mandatory life sentence. However, during the Superior Court proceedings before Judge Edward J. Daly, the state's attorney, Arthur M. Brown, along with Bertrand's defense attorney, recommended that Delphine Bertrand be, be permitted to plead guilty to the lesser charge of manslaughter 
and that the court impose a minimum sentence of 10 years. So this all goes down with a plea deal. So the court records in this case are not quite as extensive as some of the other exonerations that we're covering. What do you think of this so far? Um, I think it's interesting that she was held as a material witness for so long. Um, I, I presume that that's because she was a um, undocumented immigrant. and They thought she'd flee. They thought she would flee. Um, but what's interesting to me is the medical examiner uh, reported that Streeto's, the examination of his body was done, his head was battered, and that he had been shot through the ribs on one side, stabbed through the ribs on the other side. And it doesn't really give a lot of information about him or her actually like size wise and everything. But I find it odd that they thought a female did that. I, I also find it odd. I think it's one of those things where if you have nothing else, whatever's in front of you makes sense. Exactly. And that's, that's what I, I get that. I get that it was, Uh, You know, she had this whole tail to tail and, you know, uh, except for tying her up, I don't think they hurt her. Right. I don't believe so. No. Um, And so, you know, it was this unbelievable thing to those that were uh, speaking with her right now. um, So, you know, what do I think of this case? Well, I think they held her as a material witness for far too long. Right. And I think that very telling that they suspected her, just my opinion. Yeah, it is telling. Um, I I noticed as I was going through doing the research on Delphine's case, a lot of times I'll go looking for like information about uh, the victim. And you said James Strito is not, uh, there's not a lot of detail. There's not here, but I, I found this and this may be completely unrelated. I'm just saying it because I found it. Uh, James Strito is one of the assistant public defenders in Connecticut now in terms of like the elected office. And he shows up in a lot of court documents as a lawyer. Now? Yeah. So that's the name that shows up. And at times with, I don't know if this guy had a son from a previous relationship or something. No. Okay. So we don't know. We don't know. No, I don't know. I'm just saying James Strito, S-T-R-E-E-T-O is sort of a unique name. And for the, I the, think the, so, yeah. Yeah, so that's why I was saying, you know, that that'd be interesting to know. Yeah, but, I, I, I just, I don't know. I thought it was an interesting. Well, and the only reason I said like I don't know anything about him, like if you were to say, um, if there was some sort of physical difference between. Uh, the two of them that would make it more likely that um, she could have gotten a, 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 what do you say? A leg up in a physical fight with him because there's in, in the majority of cases, you're not going to have a man that's got multiple wounds that a woman inflicted on her, on him by herself. Right. Yeah, again, you get into these statistical rarities. Like, it does happen, but it's, you know, one in a million cases, and it's not this case. Right. Expect. Yeah, I, I agree. So they start, during this two months that she's been incarcerated, what they were doing is they were investigating Delphine. They were trying to figure out a number of things about her. 
Could she possibly be tied to all of this? Was she a trustworthy witness? And they're just doing a basic investigation. When they do this in 1944, they reveal that uh, the, the investigation into her background reveals that she had been using a variety of names after she had moved from Canada in 1918. So she's been in the New Haven community working as a housekeeper for almost 30 years. So it's about, it's about 24, 25 years when this happens. During that time, she had been arrested and sentenced to jail twice on sealed and undisclosed statutory charges. I don't know what that reference is, but I am sure that those two arrests and her going to jail influenced their decision to look at her and consider her a suspect. Yeah, sometimes sealed charges uh, are not beneficial. Correct. Uh, because uh, I can only imagine what that was. Um, I, I actually am very surprised uh, that an adult woman... Uh, would have sealed charges, right? That's really strange um, with regard to transparency, right? Yeah, I, I I tried to see if like any action had been taken like further down the road where that either got unsealed or there was a common charge at the time that would be sealed that was maybe related to a domestic incident. Sometimes like alcohol charges can go that route. I didn't find anything um, related to to her record in here. Uh, she'd been working for two years at Boxwood Manor as a housekeeper, but everyone that the police interviewed about her and the coroner interviewed about her didn't know much about her. And they, the police considered her to be a quote, mystery woman. Now, according to what she tells them as a confession, she had met James Strito through mutual acquaintances before they were working at Boxwood Manor. So she's known this guy for a number of years when this happens, at least three years. Apparently, she and James had a considerable argument over James being interested in another woman. And that argument became violent and resulted in the shooting death of James Strito. Delphine told them that she then ran from the house, she threw the gun into the bushes, and she told a neighbor that James had been hijacked, murdered, and robbed by three men, and that she had been bound by them after they, quote, attempted, end quote, to rape her. The gun was never found in the bushes, by the way. So April 11th, the judge allows the guilty plea to go through to manslaughter, and she gets sentenced to 10 to 15 years. Less than two years later, the murder investigation into James Strito's death gets reopened when a man named Philip Contino of New London is being interrogated with regard to a recent robbery. And he decides to unburden himself and he confesses to the police that he and three other men had entered James' home with the intent to rob him. So he names his, one of his accomplices, Marvin Beebe, who is also of uh, New London. And he says that the two of them shot and stabbed him. So they end up getting 
six to seven years in prison after pleading guilty to manslaughter. There were two other men present in the Strito house during the killing. They assist the state in a second investigation. And Delphine Bertrand's attorney gets involved. So his name was Bennett Alderman, by the way. He went by S. Bennett Alderman. He discovered that the story that Delphine Bertrand had told in her confession and then at her allocution to manslaughter had absolutely no basis in reality. What had happened was that Delphine had been told by a cellmate to confess to manslaughter to avoid any kind of possible death sentence if she were to be convicted of murder at trial. Uh, It seems odd that it took a different perpetrator confessing for that to be realized. Well, at least they get there, even though it's, you know, it's unfolding over time, but at least they get there. Because you're talking, so this happens uh, Christmas Eve, December 24th, 1943. She's in prison by April of 1944. That's not very long, four months, and she's basically got this massive 10 to 15 year sentence. That's, you know, at least somebody got there. I mean, yeah, and, you know, she confessed. And, I, I mean, it's it's not uncommon to uh, fear, especially, like, in the 40s or whatever. You know, the death sentence is always um, something that's going to entice someone to plea to something less, right? Yeah, but she's indicted by a grand jury. So she's now she had been held this whole time, but she's she's been indicted by a grand jury on second degree murder. Um, if she's convicted there, she's going to have an automatic life sentence. Right. And then her her uh, cellmate was saying, you know, go ahead and take the plea. And so, I mean, I see what's happening. I, I understand sort of the position because she didn't feel like she had any way to, you know, uh, not be found guilty of something. Right. Yeah. And, um, but I do think it's, uh, it's not, I mean, it's funny, but not like haha funny that they're like, Oh wait, you're right. Her confession didn't make any sense. Uh, yeah, which is, you know, which was your first instinct when you see it hindsight and all I, I know. Right. The other thing is you said that uh, so the perpetrator that ultimately ends up confessing eventually, um, they had the whole intent behind the crime. There were three of them. Is that right? Three? Uh, there's actually four. Okay. Four of them. Uh, their intention was to rob. Right. And I just said just a little bit ago how like it's never the intended outcome when there's more than one involved to kill usually. Right. Well, I found it interesting that they only got six years in prison. Well, considering she had been sentenced to 10 to 15. Yeah. But did it see, I I don't understand that. Well, so here's what happens at the end of all this. Based on this confession by Philip Contino and then Marvin Beebe being dragged into this, Delphine's case gets reopened by the Superior Court in June of 1946. And looking at how the allocution and confession had looked versus what really happened, 
which what really happened matched what she stole, what she told the neighbor in the state police the night, you know, Christmas Eve, back when it happened. So they dismissed the murder charges against her. And you want to know how much she gets for all of this happening to her in terms of, uh, like, the, the, the wrongful conviction and uh, the, the exoneration? Oh, I... Nothing? Not a penny. Not only that... I was going to say, in, I didn't see anything about in, her getting anything. <laughs> immediately after she leaves court, like, she walks out of the courthouse... She's deported? She, she gets arrested. Oh, no. <laughs> she gets arrested by immigration yeah. officials, and they prepare to deport her based on the grounds of moral turpitude relating to her convictions for whatever the misconduct was prior to James Strito being murdered. Right. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, hope that, because just because it's sealed publicly doesn't mean that somebody didn't see it, right? My, okay, here's my guess. My guess is, based on what I know, and what I'm looking at here, I think she stole something from one of her employers. And I think it was a petty theft and that the employer reported it because it was like multiple things. But didn't want to make a but, big deal out but of it. But wanted to sort of sweep it away. But I think that actually they, made it worse. Yeah, that made it worse for her. We, we You never want a situation, um, you know, kids... Uh, their records are sealed to protect their privacy. And I, I feel like that's warranted as long as it's not abused, but like uh, you don't ever want a situation where the government can, you know, confine you and not have to give information as to why that occurred. Yeah. Because ultimately what happens there is people end up confined for no reason at all. Right. And it's yeah. just sealed. Um, so there's a fun thing to run around in your brain for a little while. Yeah. Well, she got to go home for the holidays, but she got to go all the way home for the holidays. Well, I, I feel like, um, I feel like that was probably the best thing for her at that point. Uh, I can only imagine, I, I can't really imagine being in that situation, but I feel like, um, you know, she had worn out her welcome there. Yeah, through no fault, through no fault of her own. Um, honestly, she didn't really. I don't feel like she really did anything wrong, um, except give her false confession. But I'm always going to be reluctant to have as much sympathy for somebody who has falsely confessed. Yeah, over you know like somebody who's maintained their innocence, who's ultimately exonerated through some other scientific um, information. It's not that I don't, I mean, I realize some of the factors that go into it. I just, I strongly encourage people to maintain their innocence, right? If they're innocent. I have trouble with the false confession thing. You know, this false confession, I think it's done kind of out of, practicality like you don't want the death penalty but you also don't want to be like in prison for life if you can avoid it and you know whether or not 
we like that she did it. This isn't, I don't feel like she was tricked by anybody other than the cellmate kind of, and it's not as big a trick as like some of the false confessions I've read. I do think that um, her being held like she was, uh, I'm pretty sure that wouldn't happen today. Um, a material witness warrant today is very different than it would have been back then. Right. And for her to be held like for, uh, two months based on, you know, being a material witness and then for her to end up being the perpet or the suspect and being charged with it. Um, I feel like that could have strained, put a strain on her, uh, psyche as well right yeah she's just being held as a material witness she's still in she's still being confined by the government right yeah and i will say that the the reasoning for her false confession is debated there are a couple sources for this if people want to go and read about them um other than just like the the registry of exonerations you can find her story in miss uh miscarriages of justice and potentially capital cases and that's a bedeau rattle book it, uh, article from the Stanford Law Review. Uh, it's November 1987, and it's on page 97. I don't know which volume. You'll have to look that up. So there's a quote in there that does not have the same thing going on. She's also mentioned in The Innocence by Edward Radden, which I've mentioned before. It's a 1964 book. She's on page 251 there. They say uh, in this quote, that she falsely confessed a murder because she thought it was better than having her sex life publicly revealed during the trial. So there's that. And then there's the whole, she didn't want a life sentence or she didn't want the death penalty, whichever of these things uh, occurred. She has a false confession to killing a man that she didn't kill. She didn't harm in any way. She actually had a relationship with him. So right, and it's uh, very sad either way that you look at that. Of course, the, you know the forties. I mean, I can imagine that, but well, it could have had a very different outcome. Well, it yeah, it could have. She could have been put to death for it. Yeah. So yeah. I'm glad she wasn't. No, I'm also glad that she wasn't. Um, that's all I got on this one. You got anything else? No. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. So I'm going to tell you guys uh, a few things about some of the folks who are helping sponsor our show. 
Now, Labrati Creations sponsors our show, and you can always use the, the Crime XS code there. Um, you can also just message them uh, at uh, Labrati Creations, and they will generally do something for the people who come from True Crime XS. They were our very first sponsor. They've done a lot for the show, and that code is CRIMEXS at LabratiCreations.com. The first new advertisers that we have, and I've, I've selected all of these guys. I've selected all of these advertisers. So the very first one is Cure. Now, I'm going to tell you guys about this, uh, about Cure as being one of our sponsors. If you're an athlete, you know that proper hydration is key to peak performance, but plain water can be boring and sports drinks can be filled with artificial ingredients and added sugars. That's why we love Cure. It's a clean and effective way to stay hydrated and perform at your best. I use it late in the day when I switch out of caffeine mode, specifically when I hit the pool or I go play tennis with my wife. I use Cure to help me stay hydrated it helps me recover after a long day. Now, you guys may not know this, but I build things. And right now, I've been building several structures on our property out here. Among those is a new podcast studio space for myself. I do a lot of that work at night and into the wee hours. And I always have some cure with me to go into my aluminum water bottle. Hydration is not just about filling up my aluminum bottle with water. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and rehydrate quickly. Whether I'm building things or putting the podcast together or chasing these dogs that you sometimes hear in my studio up and down the trails to get them worn out, Cure Hydration is the way that I choose to go. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution or an ORS that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and to rehydrate quickly. The formula is made with all natural ingredients like coconut water powder and pink Himalayan salt. It's free from artificial flavors, from sweeteners and preservatives. Cure Hydration is vegan, gluten-free and non-GMO, making it a great option for anyone with dietary restrictions or preferences. The packets are convenient and easy to use. You just mix them with your water and you drink. They're perfect for on the go. They're perfect for travel. And anytime you need a quick and effective hydration boost, ready to combat dehydration, then you try Cure today and feel the difference for yourself. You can use code TRUECRIMEXS for 20% off your order. That's T-R-U-E-C-R-I-M-E-X-S. I have a link that I'm putting in the most recent episode show notes, and True Crime Excess will get you 20% off. Our second sponsor for the show today is Laird. Now, Laird has a list of things that they want me to tell you about. They have better ingredients with amazing taste and functional benefits. They have a superfood creamer crafted from the highest quality, all-natural, real food ingredients. All Laird products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you're incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your routine. They have all-natural, whole food ingredients. And they contain naturally occurring MCTs made from coconut oil. There's no artificial flavors. There's no colors or additives. And there's no sugar from highly refined corn syrup. They want me to talk about my love of coffee. But the truth is, I don't do much with coffee. But let me tell you someone who does. My wife has to have a cup of coffee every day. Now, <clears throat> I've fallen off recently. 
But one of the big things that I've done since the beginning of our relationship is she used to go and get a Starbucks every morning. I have substituted that out by always trying to make her coffee. It's not going to be every single day of time from when I met her, but for the most part, almost every day, I make her coffee. I put her creamers together and I make sure that she has a good way to start her day. So with Laird, he started experimenting with his morning ritual almost two decades ago. He found that when he started adding fats to his morning cup, like coconut oil, he had amazing energy throughout the rest of his day. He gradually perfected this recipe for an epic cup of fuel, and he began sharing it with his friends in the surf community. I'm an ocean guy, so I saw this item and I was like, okay, we're going to try this one out. Are you ready to feel more energized, more focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. And you can use our promo code at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Our offer code for this for Laird is going to be TrueCrimeXS. Pretty much everywhere except for Labrador Creations, if you use True Crime XS, that will get you, uh, at Laird, it'll get you 15% off. At some of the other places, it'll get you 20% off. Uh, I'm going to tell you about two more uh, sponsors today. So the first one is, uh, the third one is Liquid IV. So let's talk about the real reasons that you need to hydrate. Late night TV binging, back-to-back Zoom meetings, going on a walk with your friends. Everyday hydration is not just for high-energy athletic endeavors. Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. It's now available in sugar-free. This is years in the making, but Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free uses a proprietary zero-sugar hydration solution with no artificial sweeteners. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, but It's also got eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone. Keep your daily routine exciting with three new flavors. They've got white peach, green grape, and lemon lime. I love all of these flavors, but I think that my favorite is probably the green grape. Uh, White peach I use as a secondary flavor, and lemon lime I leave here for my kids and my kids and my wife. Uh, Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. They also partner with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50 plus countries around the world. You can get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier sugar-free or any other variant at liquidiv.com and use code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code TrueCrimeXS at liquidiv.com. And the last sponsor I want to tell you about is Zencaster. We are part of Zencaster's creative network. We've been using Zencaster since about midway into our first season. Uh, Meg and I experimented with a lot of different ways to put the podcast together. And the truth is Zencaster was an, an integral ingredient to us being able to bring you this show. 
it's so easy. It's now super easy. You can record a podcast with Zencaster. You can log in using your browser and you start recording a high quality podcast right away. You can record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guest. You get to feel a sense of Zen knowing that Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you will always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. You sound your best. I mean, if you've ever worried about what you sound like, Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes those ums and ahs in your recordings. It removes those awkward pauses and conversation too. You can set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. That's how you don't hear my dogs every uh, second of every episode. Zencaster is all in one. If you've thought about podcasting before and realized that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are now over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place and you can distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other ma major destinations. Just go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code TrueCrimeXS and you're going to get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. You can also check out the other plans they have available. I want you to have the same easy experiences that I do for all my podcasting and content needs. So Zencaster.com slash pricing. The offer code is TrueCrimeXS. And it's time for you to share your story today. Uh, we are also adding New Era as a uh, sponsor for the show. New Era Cap is a headwear and apparel brand founded in 1920 in Buffalo, New York. Now, uh, I actually have some experience with New Era Caps. My dad and I have been through multiple iterations of baseball caps through the years. We collect different styles, different eras. And now my teenager has started his own cap collection and has several New Eras as the centerpieces. Our favorite teams may not be the same, but our outfits are all topped with the same new era ball caps. Uh, we love the quality and the ability to wear what the players are wearing. Not to mention new era is the leading headwear manufacturer with quality licensed products. You can support your favorite college or pro team in style from the official headwear provider for the MLB, NFL, and NBA. You can get a stylish accessory for your everyday ensemble and support True Crime XS. Just shop the official headwear and get 15% off when you go to neweracap.com. That's N-E-W-E-R-A-C-A-P.com slash True Crime Access. You can also use the code True Crime Access at checkout. That's it. That's all you have to do. And that's 15% off your order using the promo code True Crime Access.